0: That's not what we were asking marketing to do. We were asking marketing to create sales conversations for our sellers that were more effective than the conversations the sellers could create themselves.
1: This is Reveal, the revenue intelligence podcast, here to help go-to-market leaders do one thing, stop guessing.
2: If you're ready to unlock reality and reach your full potential, this podcast is for you. I'm Danny Wasserman,
1: And I'm Karina Owens, coming to you from the Gong Studios. Hey, Danny! I think everyone is going to love this conversation with Kyle Haley. Kyle is the Senior Vice President of Sales Enablement at NFP, which for those of you who may or may not be familiar with it, is a leading insurance broker and consultancy, which provides specialized corporate benefits and retirement.
2: And one thing to add that we shouldn't forget, Kyle? Also a new podcast host. Does that make him a friend, friend of me, enemy? No, 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 Of course, here reveal. We are gung-ho about fellow podcasters out there. Check out his show. It's called Human Resource. And there are nuggets and pearls of wisdom throughout all of his episodes.
1: What I love about his creation of the podcast is he actually, as you'll see in this episode, has such a marketer's lens on how to approach the buyer's journey. And uh, Chris Walker, you're getting a shout out here on Reveal. Um, He took some notes from you and realized that you can just put out great content by simply having conversations with your buyers. And what better medium to have that in than a podcast medium? So I think you're going to see a lot of buyer's journey and marketing concepts pull through in this conversation with Kyle, which I personally thought was very interesting considering his role at NFP.
2: Take a listen and hear his comparison between do you want to be Iron Man or do you want to get terminator I'll leave you in suspense with that. Karina, anything else to add?
1: I think that's the perfect way to land this episode. This is a really good one. Let's get into it, Danny. Kyle, I know that your background here is in sales efficiency. So just to kind of lay the groundwork here for us, what is sales efficiency? How would you describe it?
0: Yeah. So for us, it's, it's what we say sort of inside NFP. It's like, how do we make every producer reach their best sales self, right? Like that's what we, that's what we kind of think at a, at a high level, broad brush. And then we can kind of jump down and start to dive in or double click as they might say over in the SaaS world from there, right? Like, well, what does that mean? It's different for each producer and some people are more tenured and it could be systems. It could be process. It could be accountability and management, but the overarching theme and what we kind of subscribe to, uh, internally is like, look, every salesperson, how do we make them their best sales self, which when you think about it, that's, that's kind of good for everybody, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I imagine, um, probably now more than ever, um, as you think about how the market is changing, it's going to be really important to tap into how to do more with less and how to efficiently coach at scale.
2: And in taking these producers, They each are unique, right? In a lot of ways, they probably self-identify as a special snowflake. are not we all special snowflakes? When in your role, you're trying to achieve optimal efficiency across all of these special snowflakes, you know, how do you balance and reconcile, hey, what is friction? for Jane may be different from Sally than Steve, than John.
0: I think of it a lot like you might think about marketing, right? And you're creating sort of personas, right? Not every person is going to be an exact fit for each persona, but more than often than not, right? 80-20 rule, whatever you want to call it. It will allow us to sort of create enough flexibility uh, that each person feels like we're not trying to conform them into that same single box, but at the same time, give us the ability to sort of scale and understand that friction. So it's so over on our side. We start by using, there's a thing over in retail called a accumulating EBITDA curve, mm. which essentially measures the profitability of locations and determines which locations in a large multi-location organization create profit for the overarching organization, sort of maintain profit, and then are a drag on profit. And so mm-hmm. the first thing we do is we apply a, a really detailed at the beginning of every year we call it accumulating EBITDA curve, or we, we now call it our sales enablement curve, which is sort of like, okay, which producers are carrying the most water, which producers are sort of right up there at the top of the curve are, are helping us maintain, might be the next breakthrough stars in the next year, right? And then which producers really need help, need support. And then from there, now that we have sort of our, like carrying the bucket, maintaining the bucket, emptying the bucket, we can start to design you know specific approaches for each cohort. And then within each cohort, sort of almost sub tiers in each cohort that says, okay, you are struggling, but we know why you're struggling, right? You're a, you're a C producer. You weren't profitable last year, but you're in a market that was a hard market. It was just a, it was a difficult macro environment, or you didn't have enough top of funnel activity. So we can focus on then the individual in the cohort, but it gives us an understanding of not only how much effort we need to put into each producer in terms of time, resources, investments in technology and systems, but then also give the producer something to work for too, right? Which is like, Hey, you don't want to have to talk to me weekly, right? That's mm-hmm. you. Sh- you should want to be that a producer where I just go like, "You, you got it. Good luck." Like, you never have to talk to me again. So that's that's kind of how we, again, think about personalization yeah. within the ability to scale because we also don't have endless
2: resources and the genesis of this enablement curve that you speak of is that a byproduct of the markets that we're operating in today, which are increasingly formidable, challenging, or has that been something that's been your bread and butter? It's in the Kyle Healy playbook in the good times and the bad.
0: Yeah, good times and bad for us, we're private equity owned, Danny, right? So (laughs) EBITDA, (laughs) Is like the name of our fantasy football league internally, right? Like it's just like EBITDA margin optimization. (laughs) Yeah, I
1: was gonna say, Kyle, you're taking me back to my private equity days. We may even need to put a disclaimer on what that acronym means. You want to go ahead and share that with our listeners? (laughs) There's gonna be there's
0: gonna be something at the bottom that explains it, right? Like like earnings before interest and depreciation and that, right? Like um, we're private equity owned, and so what's important to them is oftentimes through the lens of a typical organization short-term and sort of micro-focused, right? But it's efficient, right? Like it, it certainly drives you to get the most out of each dollar spent at the mm-hmm. end of the day. And so we just have to understand the, the model we're operating in and then make decisions around that. So no, Danny, for us, it's, it's an all the time thing because of who owns us and the environment we operate in and what's important to us at a business level in terms of metrics of success. It just happens to then allow us to pivot pretty quickly when we need to turn that dial moving into uncertain economic times, down times, right? Like we can pretty quickly identify where the fat might be, where to trim, or, you know, where to double down and make some better investments. We, we know that, hey, a, a dollar spent here results in $5 there, right? Like everything in the private equity world is multiples of, right? And so, you know, we can get pretty fine tuned into where to cut, where to double down.
1: And I think that you're very fortunate. I think there's a lot of companies right now that are kind of slowly finding out during these times that maybe they haven't had the foundations to understand what works, what doesn't work, and aren't able to pivot as quickly. And that's going to keep them lagging even further behind the competition because of that. Um, So with that in mind, is there like something you would share as people are obviously reducing headcount? Is there something that people can do or organizations can employ to kind of spot some of these trends that you've been talking about to be more efficient with less with their sellers?
0: Uh, Yeah. I mean, look, every organization is different, right? And everybody's metrics are different. For for us, again, what we're trying to focus on is the percent of our producers or sellers that attain their target, right? So again, we know we're not going to hire, right? At the same pace that we have, right? There was a great piece on CNBC the other day about like what what inflation and a lot of kind of the, the the interest rate hikes mean for investment, right? It means my, my dollar today is worth more than my dollar tomorrow. And so I've, I've got to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm keeping as much of my dollars right now, as opposed to thinking about investing the dollar now for a return tomorrow, right? It's like almost this inverse of what we have been going through the past three years. And so what we're saying is kind of cool, fine. Hiring is going to probably be slowed probably not going to make as many investments in systems, anything that sort of has like a three year runway on it, where we're, we're not going to see kind of that return of that ROI for a while, we're probably pausing. And so we've got what we've got, right? This is our hand. How do we play it? And so we focus on what we can do people wise, right? Like to, to, how can we help our sellers attain their target? More sellers attaining their sales target means everybody's operating more efficiently. How do we do that? For us, it's a, again about finding ways to make sure they're doing the right things at the right time. Um, mm-hmm. So we've invested pretty heavily going into this in artificial intelligence and insights, right? Like we've, we've built a lot of models and started surfacing a lot of insights to our producers all under the guise of focus your energy, focus your effort, spend your time more wisely, that'll create a, a better outflow at the bottom of the pipe, right? So we built a, uh, Uh, We call it a propensity to win model, right? Which essentially scores opportunities in our pipeline, zero to 100, which ones are most likely to close close at any point in their journey, dynamically adjusted. And so, cool, if I've got 50 open opportunities, I'm one person. If I I spend my energy equally across all 50, the likelihood of each one closing goes down. If I spend my energy and my focus and I weight it, and I spend more of my energy on the ones that are more likely to close and less of my energy on the ones less likely to close, I, I increase what comes out successful at the back end, right? Because I've spent more of my energy at the stuff most likely to close. That's where my energy belongs. But that's oftentimes tough for somebody to sort of realize when they're in it. And so how can we use data and insights to have people spend their time more wisely? We have another, we have over 70 products. And I'm not sure we might be getting there. I might be jumping the questions a little bit, but we have over 70 products that we can sell. We get a lot of um, you know, inaction thanks to overanalysis or noise, right? And so people just kind of revert back to what they know. But we've got all these products, which means we have a lot of problems that we could solve for a potential buyer that often go unnoticed by our producers because they just don't know about all of them or not comfortable enough with all of them. So another, you know, insight we developed was okay propensity to buy. How likely is each account to buy that next thing, and what next thing should you talk to them about next? Again, based on Scoring historical data, we've got over ten years of one loss data in our CRM, so it's a very credible model. Over fifty thousand corporate clients, right? It's a, it's a super credible model, and so the producer can trust that, like, okay, this is a great account. I'm talking to them about something else. I go in there and I look at my product recommender. Hey, you should talk to them about this next, and then that way they focus their, you know, their effort on the thing they can close quickest, fastest, most likely, right? So it's just better time spent. Well,
2: friends. As a fellow data nerd, I love Kyle's propensity to win model. What his team has created is preaching one of our favorite truths. Data is the key to maximum sales efficiency. In fact, according to HubSpot, more than 40% of sales reps say that prospecting, prospecting is the most challenging part of the sales process. The way Kyle's team is using data to directly target this all too common problem, how they're giving their teams data back facts is helping them spend time on accounts that are most likely to close as opposed to chasing false positives. It's a brilliant way to keep teams encouraged, efficient and winning. With that said, let's get back to Kyle.
1: I think that's what impressed me the most in speaking with you and the team speaking with you previously is how you really didn't have kind of a marketing motion Previously, it was very sales driven and everything you're describing right now is, is marketing. It's like the yeah. buyer's journey. When should sales enter prioritizing top of funnel at times like this, right? Making sure that we have enough volume of hand raisers and knowing that that's going to be the highest in- indicative of capturing that demand is generating that top of the funnel. So it was incredible to hear a salesperson really talk like a marketer and take a step back and and look at it through that lens. Um I would love for you to kind of dive into that with us. How did you create that inbound sales motion for NFP?
0: Yeah, the inbound sales motion is a new thing too, right? Because our producers, like most insurance brokerages, consultancies, financial services, right? It's word of mouth. It's the old school referral, the flywheel. I took you to a steak dinner, a Yankee game, and you tell me the three people you know who look like you. And then I go call them and you put in a good word for me, right? And That works to a point, um, but it's hard to scale. Earlier this year, we started to look at how could we kind of amplify that, right? And the obvious answer is marketing, social media, right? The internet, which not the first choice for people in our type of industry or our our organizations. And I'm lucky that I have marketing colleagues, peers that get it, right? Like that buy in, that understand that like, The point of marketing, much like every other function in the organization, is to create at-bats for sales, to lead ultimately to revenue, right? Like, you know, we're all kind of working towards the same ultimate goal. And so they were super happy to participate once we kind of laid out for them what we were trying to do. And there was no like ego of ownership over our inbound project. It was like we knew it was going to be sort of a cross-function collaboration. It took a lot of people coming together from their kind of corner of the company say i think we can do this a better way and what we basically thought like thesis wise was like we've got a huge total addressable market we're only scratching the surface of it with a producer led outbound motion there's, there's a way to find more people's eyeballs so that they know who we are and what we do and how we can help them if we amplify our message through social media And so that's what we did we we, we put some money to work so again like kudos to our executive leadership and our private equity owners and our board it would have been very easy for them to be like nah we're fine But they heard our pitch and they heard our ask and they said like, huh, yeah, okay, cool. Let's see, right? Like if they hadn't been open to the experiment, it stops dead. So, you know, we basically said like, look, we can can get marketing involved. We can start a social campaign. We can get our message out there. We can target specific buyers, personas, ICPs that we know we do well at, which was if we hadn't invested in insights and analysis three, four years ago, we wouldn't have known where we do well, what to target, right? So like that, that kind of foundation came first. We had to know where to go spend our money effectively and efficiently to reach the right people at the right time. Otherwise we're just throwing spaghetti against the wall and nobody likes wasting millions of dollars, right? So uh, knowing where to go and where to spend that money was first, but then kind of putting it out there and also accepting that like, it's kind of a long cycle, right? Mm-hmm. So having marketing, understand our buyers, rely on sales to tell them who our buyers are, Right and trust that sales knows the buyer. They've been working with the buyer, and then kind of develop collateral and assets towards that, and put it out there, and just see what happens. Um, have them own that, and understand that their goal is not to make something fun. We don't care about clicks or views. That's not what we were asking marketing to do. We were asking marketing to create sales conversations for our sellers that were more effective than the conversations the sellers that could, could create themselves. Right? And so being really clear with their mission and their objective that this is not about views and clicks and vanity metrics. Like, I don't care. I don't care if anybody clicks that ad, but if I can look and my inbound people are having more better conversations than my outbound people, marketing you win, right? Now I'm, I'm happy to tie your success to my metric, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I certainly think that the only path forward for go-to-market organizations is to align on a singular north star metric. And to your point, otherwise, it just does fall to the wayside of vanity metrics. So, I really liked your soundbite too. Of all salespeople, should be good marketers. Uh, I usually hear the reverse, so that was a that was comforting to hear too.
0: No way, right? Like what you know. (laughs) I've got a personal brand that complements the corporate brand, right? If I don't understand how to get that out there and what people are interested in seeing as a result of that, or thinking more buyer centric than like yeah. company centric, that's where we're at. I, th- I mean, I think. I like marketers. I like marketing people. I'm not one of those salespeople that's like, oh, those marketing people just throwing garbage over the fence. Marketing is is critical. I, I need them.
2: Interesting segue to talk about, you know, what sales is and isn't thinking about their cross-functional team members. This next question is going to double back a bit. Your Very disruptive philosophy, Kyle, and how you guys are going to stay relevant and actually probably outpace your competition and underpinning, if I'm right, is that you guys are choosing to very proactively harness technology. Is that a fair sort of synopsis so far?
0: I think so. We kind of embraced this four or five years ago. You know, we've seen our peers at more of the sales tech conferences, sales enablement conferences, sales ops conferences in the past 12 months than I was seeing when I was at those same conferences five years ago, right? So I'd like, I'd like to think we were there first, but- I would think you know.
2: that, yeah, no, this is like a very authentic credit where credit is due. You guys, the Wayne Gretzky quote, you anticipate where the puck was going, that's where you were skating. My question to you now is, okay, so you have been able to have this enablement curve. You've been able to proactively know where you wanna allocate resources, where are you gonna see the most yield? How are you gonna tailor all these things? And to do that, you have employed the value of AI. And that has unleashed huge efficiencies. And at the same time, it has introduced the possibility of, will I become obsolete? Will I be replaced? And would love to hear how, as you've done tremendous things for NFP, at the same time, have you inadvertently created a state of paranoia or concern? Much in the same way we've seen how all these movies play out with the Terminator, we are going to be replaced by robots. Talk a little bit about that.
0: Look, no matter what, we're in a people business. One of our trusted partners, their tagline is like where sincerity meets science. And like that's, that's us. Most of what we sell is complex B2B, large buying circles. The product itself is highly commoditized. And so there's an inherent level of trust in the person that kind of differentiates, right? Their expertise, their knowledge. So we can't remove the people. We would die. We would shrink. What we're trying to do is augment the people, right? And so, like your Terminator, there's a great professor at Duke Business School, and he, I would, I've gotten this like ten years ago. At this point, I had gone to a a session about market efficiency and outbound motions and things like that, and he was talking about travel agents and how travel agents had failed at that point to embrace technology, and so they were quickly being replaced by it. And his metaphor, his analogy was. They could have chosen to become Iron Man. They could have bolted on the technology onto their sort of authentic human self to make their human self better. Right. But instead, they tried to fight it and they got terminated. Technology took them over, eliminated them as a business, as a race, whatever you want to put. Right. Like, and, and so his point was don't get terminated. Right. Like, think about where technology can enhance and augment what you're already doing. And that's what we, that's what we try to do. So we've definitely had producers, executives, managers come to me and say, like, like you trying to trying to just eliminate me? Um, no, uh, mm-hmm. never. And look, will there be certain products or certain business lines that the most efficient way to support the buyer's journey is to eliminate a little of the people somewhere in there and make it a little bit more of I it? Mean, yeah, absolutely. Does that mean sometimes we might look at like, hey, the commission or the percentage of the revenue that you take as a seller isn't as high because we're helping you do more, right? So you're gonna make more money, but you just won't make as much on every deal because we're asking you to do less to convert and create every deal. Like, yeah, maybe. We're not there yet, but maybe. But the approach uh, that we take is like, no, the person is critical to this. We're just trying to help them do more of what they're best at and get rid of the rest, like get rid of the noise. Our sellers, Yes, I think they should be good marketers, but at the end of the day, they are not great marketers, right, and they're never gonna be, that's not their skill set. And so why do I want them to be marketers up at the top of the funnel? I want them to have as many discovery, consultative meetings as possible with people who have real problems so that we can help them fix their problem. That's where I want them to spend their time. Now, historically, they've had to spend time at the top of the funnel to get more of those. How can I help them out and have them spend more time in the middle, right, or at the end? So legit concern, you know, I, I think we work through it and we, we just kind of let people trust that like, no, you're, you're at the center of this, you're the athlete here. We're trying to, we're trying to give you better equipment.
2: And this mindset shift that you talk about, we're going to lean into this notion that Iron Man can harness the power of technology as opposed to resist it and be steamrolled by the machines. Kudos to your leadership and kudos to your board for allowing you to experiment in something that probably. You know is now commonplace but when you talk about launching this philosophy a few years ago was not per se the standard or the norm we had the opportunity Karina and i to interview guy ross from how i built this and guy had some incredibly i think relevant insight for what it is that we're talking about he said what disruptive hyper growth companies do differently than those that simply limp along or stagnate or eventually atrophy and pass off they celebrate collaboration they create an environment where risk-taking is encouraged and they don't stigmatize failure not like fatal failure but they don't stigmatize these experimental failures in a way that you are jeopardizing your career and knowing what you've just shared would you say that when you kick this whole campaign off that you had those three sort of the holy trinity guy Raz pillars at nfp
0: I didn't know we needed those, but yeah, it seems like we've stumbled into the Holy Trinity. Yeah, absolutely. Like I couldn't, I couldn't have done this by myself or sales couldn't have done this by ourselves, right? Like we had to, we had to get marketing involved much sooner and much earlier on than I think they even probably wanted to be. And, you know, again, this was not anything we had ever asked our marketing people to do historically, right? Like this wasn't, in often, in a lot of cases, their skill set, right? It's not like they were already doing this, and we just asked them to do it differently. Like we said, somebody's got to do this. Might as well be you guys. And they were up for the challenge, right? They said, "We can upskill too. We can learn. We can do this." So yeah, like even not just trust from the top, but even trust from like peers, colleagues, to say like, "Kyle's insane," or those salespeople are crazy, right? They could have very easily been like, "No, we're not. This is too big of a risk for us. We're not going to put our career on the line." Like they were like. Yeah, let's. This sounds fun. Like we're along for the ride.
1: I would love for you to kind of dive into human resource, your new podcast, how that came to be, and how that's kind of helping you map out the rest of your buyer's journey, if you will.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was so. I have a broadcasting background. Like that's what I went to school for. I want to be a sports broadcaster. Uh, I have a little bit of a creative side. When we were talking to the agency that we were working with, Refine Labs, if anybody doesn't follow Chris Walker online, go follow Chris Walker like that. Like that is I listened to his stuff for three years. But, you know, most yep. of what I'm saying probably sounds a lot like what he's saying. He's probably going to call me after this and, and be like, hey, listen, and you didn't even acknowledge me. So there I am acknowledging him. He's Kyle, me you're, a, lot. you're okay.
1: a marketer. Like you're no, the, okay. the, I want to change the ti- I want to change your title. You are a marketer. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, don't tell my marketing people, they'd be so mad. Um <laughs> when we engaged with them because I really bought into what Chris was saying and and how he approached kind of this this idea of demand creation and capture versus lead generation from a marketing perspective and how much more that supported sales and organic growth. You know, yep. one of the things we struggled with internally was like, hey, look, it's just creating enough content is hard, right? Like it, it's just you can it, it's an insatiable appetite that buyers have out there on social media, the ability to create enough high quality content. It's a task, right? It's a lift. And one of the things he said was like, hey, the easiest thing to do is start a podcast. Man, like you just, you record a 45 minute to hour long podcast. You know how many like 30 second to a minute long social posts you can get out of that? Like, you know, the legs on that are amazing. Like, and I was like, huh, okay. I used to be in human capital benefits, right? Like total rewards consulting. We did insurance, we placed benefit programs. That's what I did. That's how I got into the business. And so I had a lot of HR contacts. Mm. our optimal buyer for our benefits business that I had been talking to over the pandemic. Like just trying to stay in touch and when things finally opened up, you know, getting getting coffee with them, trying to get back out there because I like being in person. I like seeing people or I don't like being behind a computer. And I was having all these conversations with them, just casual conversations about what they were struggling with and how things had changed and what they were doing about it. Uh, and one of my, my friends, Lisa Baird over at Hydra, you just start a podcast and mm-hmm. just capture all this stuff and put it out there because this is, to your point, this is where people learn. This is where they go for their information now. So if I'm a small to mid-sized people leader, benefits manager, HR person, I'm doing research online, trying to figure out what's trending, what people are doing about it, how my peers are addressing the kind of macro things that are impacting all of us. This is where I'm gonna go. I'm gonna listen to a podcast. I'm gonna do a social search, right? So it kind of made sense. It was fun for us. We were able to aggregate a lot of information, good, useful information for our ideal client and persona in one place. Um, it also gave us an excuse to kind of connect and talk to a lot of our our clients, our friends, our network in a more kind of strategic way. And then it gives us good content, right? Like we have stuff to post on social. Uh we even have a plan to kind of get more of our 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 internal folks involved, right? So it's like a twice weekly. The first 40 minutes is our is our buyer, our client, our HR person talking about what they struggle with, what they're dealing with, how they're approaching it. And then there's a 15 minute follow-up where it's like now we can showcase the horsepower of NFP by bringing on an internal consultant for NFP and saying, cool, dynamic consulting, solve their problem. How would you solve it? Who would you work with? What would you do? What would you put in place, right? And so now we can kind of marry four people out there, right? Because that's the other thing, right? Like stop gating stuff, stop holding stuff, like put it out there, help people fix their problems. They will eventually find another reason to do business with you. You don't need to kind of guard all of that internal knowledge so closely anymore. So uh, all of it just made sense. And it's fun. I like it.
1: I love this notion of like, you're giving them the platform, right? Versus asking for 30 minutes to an hour of their time for us to just bang question after question, disco question, uh, to get answers from you. We're letting you come on and tell your story and showcasing you as a leader. What better way to start building a relationship with your potential or future customers than that? So bravo to Uh, you for, for taking that in.
0: They're at the center of it all. Our tagline is people first. And we need our people. Like, our people have to come first if our people are motivated and cared for and feel engaged. But it's still just, you know, put people at the center of everything we do. Shout out to Bob Iger, right? Returning to Disney, Ithaca College alum, Go Bombers, <laughs> right? Like, saying, like, you know, the creativity has to be at the center of everything the storytelling, the person. It can't all be about kind of numbers and metrics and all that stuff. So, yeah.
2: Well, Kyle, I know we are taking away tons of nuggets from today's discussion. The sincerity meeting science, the notion of Iron Man versus Terminator, just these mindset shifts. And to put a bow on things, people are always at the center of it. I love that as a way to cap off this episode. We do have one more zinger for you, though. Yes, this is, if you're a reveal listener, this shouldn't come as a surprise. But here we go, Kyle. If you could describe sales in one word, what one word would you use?
0: Authentic. It's a it's an authentic ability to kind of like connect and solve and be human. I don't think successful salespeople can fake it, right? That used car salesperson kind of analogy, the I'm going to put on my voice, right? Like it doesn't, it you know, it's, it doesn't work anymore. I think right now for sales, the one word to describe effective sales, successful sales is authentic. It's got to be authentic.
2: You could definitely add Karina and I to the list of the Healy fan club. Yep, uh, we're, thanks, we're proud thanks. members. This has been an absolute riot. The man's Dude, got I'm jokes. Except,
0: listen, I told you, Danny. Like I listen to the podcast. I've gotten things from the podcast. I presented things in executive meetings that I stole from the podcast. Right. So I am. Uh, it is my honor. Thank you for having me on.
1: Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Reveal. If you want more resources on how revenue intelligence can help you create high-performing sales teams, head on over to gong.io. If you like what you heard, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We appreciate you.